Welcome to the Test Kitchen. You are listening to a podcast by Design Bites Research Team. We bring you bite-sized tips and tricks about food and beverage businesses, as well as interview the change makers in the industry. Join us to the Test Kitchen. Welcome to our first episode, where our Alta Design Factory professor Tuva Pöklund looks into the product development with Mikko Koskinen, the founder of Kyra Distiller in Finland. They chat about Kyra's product development together with bartenders and how Mikko advises everyone to be brave in developing new products. Also, Aira Samulin is mentioned in this episode, so enjoy! Product development is a team sport, and often this team is temporarily extended outside of company boundaries. The most common forms of collaboration we've seen in our research in the industry have been sharing insights and co-developing products together with other entrepreneurs and restaurants in the food industry, testing together with retailers and suppliers, and working together with consumer communities, particularly in building markets for new types of products. Our guest of today has worked closely together with all of these groups, and we'll hear some spirited examples of how such collaboration can work in practice. Mikko. Welcome to the show, and thanks for taking the time amidst leading Kyra Distillery's expansion into the German market. To kick things off, can you open up a bit what your relationship is to developing new products? Sure. I'm one of the co-founders of Kyra Distillery, and I started the development career at Kyra Distillery by, by co-developing Kyra Napuagin, and then I've been involved in most of our development processes ever since. I think um, products should be developed quite holistically. Building a great product requires understanding both trends and consumer, having brand foundation, and then skill to interpret those needs and translate them through your brand into products. As simple as that. Awesome. When do you know that it's the right time to reach out of your own team? You can start it right away. Another development project that we did was um, Cream Liqueur. We're based in, a, in an old dairy. Makes sense for us to do something out of dairy products. But would anybody need a Finnish Cream Liqueur or why should the people care? So we started going to, to bars, interviewing uh, in consumers and seeing trend reports once more. And we, we got the insight that there's actually like latent demand for cream liqueur or like indulgent enjoyment that doesn't get fulfilled because the existing offering are mainly dominated by Baileys. Um, they all, we also found out that a lot of people thought that Baileys didn't feel natural because the shelf life was so long. And uh, we took those learnings and then developed a product that's quite natural. Um, it was packaged in a way that it, it looks like it's well-designed and well-made. It's more expensive. And when we started, the shelf life, life was very short because we wanted to communicate the fact that this is made from actual cream that comes from like within 60 kilometer radius from our distillery. One of the reasons you've moved to Berlin is to get closer to the customers to understand local needs and opportunities in the German market. How much time and effort should you spend to get close to your customers? I think the closer you are to your end consumer, the more you can rely on your own instinct, instincts and intuition. The further away you are, more you would need to understand the end consumer and do more rigorous testing. So for Finnish audience, we can we can develop products quite easily. There's so many things, especially when it comes to, to marketing, that uh, we as a nation share and that we can use as unique selling points, such as, in our case, a rye. Most of the Finns have certain associations of rye, and if we use that as a selling point, those associations transfer to our product. However, if we go outside Finland, for example, to Italy, rye isn't seen as like uh, something that is robust and desirable and hearty. It's something that is seen as forest feed, and it's <laughs> much harder to start pitching your product by saying that we made this very expensive whiskey out of horse feed. Not really. 
Yeah. Uh, in addition to the end consumers, you've been working quite a bit in, in different projects together with bartenders. So a product developer walks into the bar. What's happening next in the punchline of the joke? Bartenders are experts on spirits, but they are also, they have their own set of values and things that are considered desirable, but they don't necessarily align with consumers' ideas of what is desirable. So this we had, uh, we learned the hard way. We developed two bidders and we did that development together with bartenders. And the idea was it would be something that is going to be used in cocktails and Therefore, if we co-develop those with bartenders, it surely will be a success. And we did amazing development. We had bartenders describing what they would like to try. We would distill like separate distillates at the distillery and ship like 24 containers to each bartenders from different countries. And they would then uh, mix their own own bitters. And we would have very confusing Skype calls where people tried to explain what they did and, and how it worked. And then we took everybody at the distillery and finally the development and came up with uh, with two bitters. There was quite a bit of excitement at the bartender's end, but somehow products didn't really resonate with the end consumers and they remained, I would say, a little bit niche or even gimmicky. And that was like one of the biggest learnings on even if you co-develop something with experts, you might end up doing something that the end consumer doesn't really, uh, really want. And if bartenders could choose what people would be drinking, I think the drink world would be very different from, from what it is now. That's actually a nice example. I always say that the only failed experiment is one that you don't learn anything from. Is there something you would do differently in hindsight or what was the learning from this experiment? So the learning from this experiment is that like we should have run another group in parallel where we would have tested everything with end consumers. And really quickly, we would have found out that uh, the word bitter doesn't tell anything to most of the, uh, most of the people. They know bitters not as a category but as brands such as Aperol or Campari. Yeah. And it is really, really hard to, to get into that category unless uh, unless you make something that is easy to understand and easy to use for end consumers as well. And had we, well, this is still very hypothetical, but had we understood that and find the things that are in the intersection of what bartenders loved and consumers loved, then we most likely would have been quite successful. Okay, so if we think about developing in general, how would you plan for, on the one hand, keeping within your strategy and doing the things that you want to do? And on the other hand, learning from these experiences or the opportunities that just happen to land on your lap? That's an excellent question. And um, when, you, when you're a startup and developing your portfolio really quickly, um, one of the pitfalls is, I like to call it the strategy of inbound. Um, the fact that there's, there's new ideas that might be based on an opportunity. But because it's a new idea, it's easy to grasp it and start executing it without spending the necessary time to understand like what is the need or uh, rationale behind this, this idea. And then think whether the idea that sort of led you to that source of the deeper insight, whether that idea is actually the best to that or to catch that opportunity. So my advice is that you should be very, very, very careful when somebody proposes you something that sounds good, uh, you should always try to somehow understand deeper logic behind it and hopefully come up with like a couple of other ideas in the same space and then um, pick the one that makes sense. For example, let's say uh, alcohol, hard seltzers, essentially like spirits, bubbly water, flavorings doesn't have calories goes down really quickly so they became super popular in the states and we see that a lot of europeans and um, distilleries or breweries are trying to replicate that success and it might work that way or you might want to take a look on 
what are the trends that led to that? So there's healthification. People don't want to have as many calories. It's convenience. So people want to have things that are easy to, uh, like easy to drink. And it's also sort of a little bit of a lashback to the craft beer movement, which became really complicated, almost like the world of wine. Like beer used to be very simple. Now it's as com- it is as complicated as wine. And by understanding those trends and needs, you might be able to formulate something that is fulfilling those needs, but it's not just replicating something that is successful in the States in the same form. Yeah, so kind of what I'm hearing is that you want to take a step back and think about why something is happening rather than just trying to copy it. Yes. The same. How do you find out what's the why behind stuff? Uh, please always ask why. I think best way is actually go and ask very simple childish questions on why are you drinking that? Why, do you, why did you choose that? How does it make you feel? And uh, who do you think that you identify with uh, when you drink that? What are the people that drink that are, are like? And, and little by little, you'll start getting the picture of why something is popular or more importantly, if people can't say why they're drinking something, there might be opportunity there because a product that has strong why always is a product that doesn't have that strong why. I can just imagine you chatting up customers in uh, in Finnish and German bars. How do you make it work? That's the hard thing. It's really, really hard to keep yourself like objective. So if you're building a brand, you start seeing world through the lens of that brand. And in order to understand the customer, you should somehow uh, get out of that mindset and be as sort of blank slate as possible. So that's one uh, one thing that you, sh- you should make sure that happens as you're approaching the customer. So uh, removing all like branded elements and make sure that you don't come by as a I don't know whiskey distiller because if like if the the person that you're chatting us thinks that you're a whiskey distiller they would like without understanding they will try to be as knowledgeable about whiskey as possible or they might become like defense, defensive like I I know nothing about whiskey even if they do yeah sounds like really sound advice. Looking at small packaged food and beverage ventures, mm-hmm. we've seen there is a fairly even split between intentionally thought feedback from consumers and more unplanned learning from them. Yes. How much spontaneous feedback do you get? I would say that uh, getting feedback is, is quite seasonal. Most importantly is whenever whenever it's possible, like trying to establish sort of uh, sources of feedback that are continuous. So for example, um, at the distillery, uh, people who, who are visiting, they have the chance to uh, to taste our products and that's like one place where we can get like continuous feedback on our products uh, and then i would say that online is amazing way of, of getting feedback and it's not about people explicitly saying something but it's also just trying to understand people's preferences based on their behavior what kind of marketing message resonates and uh, gets engagement those i would still count that as a consumer feedback and I would even say that it's like one of the, the more honest kind because people in this case give feedback without knowing that they do give feedback when they spend more time in whiskey than, for example, in gin. Whereas customers, personal networks and companies and other industries tend to be sources of information and inspiration in product development. We've seen in our research that collaboration tends to be more mutual when entrepreneurs work together with companies in the same industry. Gudo Distillery has actually made co-branded products with quite a range of companies, both within and outside of the food and beverage industry. For example, you've done a cranberry chocolate with Gudio, and Long John's with Mahonen. 
What does it take to do a good co-branded product? And why would you do one? Collaborative products are not the best in terms of profit because there's two parties sharing that profit. But what it's what they re- are really good for is brands that somehow benefit on loaning each other's audience or attaching something from the other brand's values that you don't necessarily carry yourself and you don't want to like embrace for for eternity but you would need for a certain product for the first category for example sweden is probably going to be a really big market for our whiskey hopefully and um, we did a caramel sauce with local toffee uh, factory and that collaboration enabled us to get more reach in sweden it also enabled us to serve our own end consumers uh, in finland with, uh, with delightful product and it helped uh, badlands to uh, to get more uh, more fan base on the second one which is like adapting some qualities from another brand uh, we did a very very weird and unorthodox collaboration by doing hand cream for bartenders and we partnered up with um, a company or a brand called Tummeli, which is very sort of blue collar work, working person's hands, <laughs> hand cream. And the rationale behind that one was the, um, the insight that bartenders' hands were kind of scruffy because they work with acids, they work with detergents, they work with hot and cold water, ice. So they can get into a really, really bad shape really quickly. And because they are bartenders, we wanted to make a product that carries the, the sort of like super down-to-earth values. But having that contrast of premium spirits and that brand made it interesting. And we got really, really good feedback from that. And with that one, I would say that the, the main benefit for us was gaining certain brand love within the bartenders and with Tummeli gaining an access to new consumer group. While large companies typically have clearly articulated product development processes with stages and gates, smaller companies often guide their work through more the mentality and the way we work around here rather than formal processes. This may come in handy in times of crisis. As the famous saying goes from management scholar Peter Drucker, culture eats process for breakfast. How would you describe Gura Distillery's development culture at the moment? I would say it's right now more quick and dirty than, than anything, especially during COVID. It, it sort of broke down a lot of our processes. We need to have different people doing development than previously. And also there's been a number of things that we needed to, to develop. And the time that we, we had in hand for, for product development was really limited. So it, it needed to, we needed to cut some corners on, on some of the upcoming products. One thing that worked really well was canvas-based development. And in that one, we took like all the aspects of, of the company that are somehow related into, into that product. And we put everybody in, in the same room and gave them a canvas where they sort of defined the project by defining their own piece at that project. And that, at the end, kept everybody really well in the same page on what is happening, what is required from everybody. And, and I would say that we managed to develop a, a really, really good product in, in a matter of two months, but it required a simultaneous iteration and one way of like laying out uh, the status of the concept and accepting the fact that there's changes that are going to affect your part of the project, but at least you're aware when that happens. Yeah. Is there something that you've been experimenting at the moment or something new that's been cooking up on your side? Well, I'm taking this call in the middle of 
our local creative agency's meeting room. And that's, uh, that's because uh, we operate our wall store from this location, meaning that in an hour and a half, people in like central Berlin can order our products and have them at home in approximately 30 minutes. That's I would say that it's not innovation in terms of doing a new product for, for a bottle, but it's uh, innovation in terms of uh, making a package that enables you to do a proper gin and tonic at home if you don't feel like going out or if, if you're guaranteed. If you now think about our listeners who are either in the food and beverage business or thinking about starting companies, what kind of advice would you give on what should they be experimenting with or what should they take into consideration when experimenting the next time that they're developing something? Be fucking brave. Like most of the people in uh, food and beverage industry seem to sort of go um, the easy or standard route and they make products that are interesting to like very small group of people or products that like don't really evoke any emotion and i think by being brave and um, building like grounding your product and brand in in consumer insight you can you can really move move a lot of things I know that we're approaching the end of our time together. So one thing I would still like to ask you is, can mm. you think of an example where you've kind of debated internally, should we do this or not? And then gone in the brave route or what would have been your most shocking development decision? Well, there's been a num- number of those. Some of them might seem quite banal at the moment. For example, uh, when we launched our long drink in like early t- 2016, it was still time when there weren't, weren't craft long drinks, except I think Helsinki Distance was about to launch or already had launched theirs. And uh, what was really uh, scary for us was um, the category that is like somehow associated with Bacar de Greaser. Like, can we be incredible and be producing something in that category that is going to be like really close to Bacar de Greaser? What if people just like start hating us for it or if people think that they don't need to buy a bottle of gin anymore, they will buy it. And uh, then we decided that we're going to do it. And that was one, I would say, act of bravery. And the second act of bravery was to, to build the marketing campaign on on top of Ida Samulin. Um, she's, she was at the time 88 years old and he had been drink, she had been drinking alcohol for only the past eight years. So for the first eight years of her life, she was a teeth teller. And, and she had like her hair color matched the color of the drink and her like really sparkly spirit really matched the, uh, the essence of the, of the drink, which was a little bit drier and more intense in, in flavor. And uh, we came out with a, with a picture of her dancing in like late winter field. And luckily, she didn't fall down during the shoot. And that could have been the, the end of, of that story. And when we came out with that, it made news. We started to get calls from, from uh, wholesalers and grocery shops or grocery chains that uh, even though it's outside their normal like uh, cycle of, of onboarding products, they would like to make an exception and have it on board. I think that's sort of... Even though it doesn't feel brave now, necessarily, because there's a number of uh, craft long drinks in the market, the way that it was launched was kind of brave. Yeah, many experiments look straightforward afterwards, but it's always a gamble before the benefit of hindsight. I would say also like one of the scariest things was to, to overall found a distillery that is going to make Finnish rye whiskey out of molded rye because finland first of all isn't a country that has a lot of history in whiskey making secondly rye is not a grain that you would use in europe for for whiskey and most of rye whiskey is not really premium and making rye whiskey out of malt is going to make it much more expensive i would say that that's probably the bravest that we've done especially due to the fact that it requires huge amount of investment uh, beforehand 
and um, and not knowing whether whether it's going to be popular. I think that's also like one of the the last things or one of the things to to end with, which is like contradict everything that I've said before. Sometimes you just need to decide what kind of world you would like to see and then start building that. Awesome. I think that those are perfect closing words. Thank you so much for being with us today, Mikko. Excellent. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you, Mikko and Tuo. Join us in the next episode to continue the discussion on the heart and soul of products and how companies can gather feedback to find the beating core. This podcast was brought to you by Design Bytes research team at Design Factory Aalto, University in Helsinki, Finland. We investigate food and beverage companies and their co-creation, collaboration and experimentation practices. Thanks for joining.